Welcome to the State of Minds podcast, where we pick the brains of the best minds in neuroscience today. This is a podcast of the Graduate School of Systemic Neurosciences at the Ludwig Maximilian University in Munich, made possible thanks to the generous support of Lena Beetle and Sven Schwan. Today we have an interview with Professor Hans Optipek, who is a group leader of human brain imaging and rodent visual cognition at the Catholic University of Leuven in Belgium. We discussed a variety of topics, including the skewed proportion of PhDs to postdocs and the progressively narrowing final leading to tenure, the balance between high throughput analysis of natural behaviors versus training animals to perform more sophisticated and admittedly artificial tasks. And also, we compare the differences between the American and European academic environments. I hope you will find this listening experience enjoyable. And here is my interview with Professor Hans of de Beck. You did your undergraduate and graduate studies in psychology, so I was wondering how did your psychological education in the early 2000s influence how you view what is going on in neuroscience in 2018? How do you evaluate it? Well, uh, I haven't changed my, my basic uh, central interest. When I started as a psychologist, I was interested in, in behavior. And, and why we as humans uh, behave the way we do. And so I uh, uh, started not with the idea to do any animal research uh, or even neuroscience wasn't what I thought about when I started as a, as a first year uh, bachelor. But yeah, after having a course in, in, in neuroscience, I, I realized that's where it is. <laughs> that's where the explanation is. Uh, and, and whatever fact influences our behavior, we always do it by influencing what our neurons do, and that will then influence uh, behavior. But behavior is still my, my central interest. That, uh, I studied in, in humans or in animals, is the behavior that I uh, consider crucial. And sadly enough, it's, it's also the one that is often most 
difficult to have control over. So in neuroscience, we have had a, a huge amount of uh, progress in, with some experimental methods, and especially in rodents, you have uh, had an explosion of that in the past uh, 20 years. Um, but to really know uh, what is happening and what the circuitry is doing, you always need to combine it with behavior. And, and often experiments actually get into frustrating phases because of that. Now you have just mentioned uh, you own problems with the technical part, so I'm not denying that there's a lot of uh, expertise building up you need there and it's complicated. But uh, we have had less progress there and it, it's the, the crucial bit. And so if you can get your animal to do an interesting behavior, then, then that uh, limits what you can study there. And, and so I think behavior is a very important skill, uh, which is also to some degree technical. And, and I, I think in neuroscience, especially given all the explosion of, of uh, technical progress in other subfields, uh, uh, we, we tend to forget that that's also very important. Right? So I think behavior is important, not only for me conceptually, but also technically it's a big challenge to get the animals to do the interesting tasks that you need to investigate stuff. So that hasn't changed in, in the years, and that's probably something that I, I still have from my psychology background, even though afterwards when I was doing PhD and postdoc, I've often been in places where there were also a lot of neurobiologists and engineers around. That central focus hasn't moved away. And more recently, uh, I've also gone a little bit into the, the, the bits of artificial intelligence using those uh, neural network uh, things. But even there, it's often about like what do they do and what are they trained for and what, uh, how does their output relate to what humans show in behavior and, and things like that. So I even at those neural networks, I often look at them as a psychologist uh, looks at, at a person uh, trying to understand behavior of those uh, things. So, uh, so that has stayed over the years. Yeah. Some things have, gone, uh, have been added, but that has stayed. Yeah. How do you define interesting behavior? Because there is all almost always a trade-off, especially in animals. The more interesting behavior from our point of view the harder it is to interpret. Yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's where uh, the whole field of uh, psychophysics comes into play, like the, um, the quantitative analysis of behavior is, is of course crucial. And, and the level at which you want to control it is depending on the, the question of interest, and that's not very different from uh, what an, an experimentalist that would even be not, not look at behavior would have to do. So if, you, if you're interested in the retina, for example, uh, you, you might need to characterize a visual stimulus by the number of quanta uh, that the stimulus is made from. And, and that's a very basal way, basic way to quantify a stimulus. Uh, somebody that is studying primary visual cortex doesn't care about quanta and will uh, describe a stimulus maybe in terms of like orientation, you look mm -hmm. at gratings and you can very nicely quantify the gratings in terms of orientation, spatial frequency and so on. And it's, it's very technical, it's very quantitative, but it, it's at a much higher level than the quanta that you would use to uh, describe the responses in the retina. And, and so, depending on what you want to study, you have a different level at which you need to quantify your stimuli. And I think the same is true for behavior. The dimensions in which you uh, work and the dimensions in which you want to uh, understand the behavior depends on what you are interested uh, in. But you can do psychophysics if you are interested in, in those dimensions that are relevant for the retina, but you can also do that if you're interested in social dimensions. 
And so the challenge is to quantify those dimensions so that you can use all those tricks and, and formula and methods that we have from psychophysics. So even a social neuroscientist in principle can try to quantify behavior almost as neatly as a hardcore psychophysicist studying uh, sensory perception mm -hmm. can. But the challenge is sometimes harder because you need to quantify your dimensions very cleanly uh, to do so. Uh, I don't know whether that was an answer to the question. But. Hey, it was, but if we take it to extreme, so there have been many opinion pieces recently claiming that neuroscience needs more behavior and many more blog posts commenting and saying, yes, we do. But then when people come to designing their own experiments, they're faced with this challenge of interpretation and training the animals to actually perform the mm -hmm. task. So if, if you were to choose the most fruitful path, and if we, as I said, take it to extreme, what would you choose? Like Michael Halasa style, extremely complex cognitive task with auditory cue, visual cue, perceptual learning, decision making, mm -hmm. and then it takes seven months for him to train the animals, mm -hmm. or people who are more into, we just get the mouse into the arena, we employ machine learning, we try to segment and quantify its natural behavior, and we start from scratch there. Mm -hmm. Well, in, in, over the years that I've been in, in neuroscience, uh, it's, it's obvious to me that, and I already mentioned that the progress in, in some methods, uh, some technical methods, is sometimes, um, yeah, it's definitely not like a continuous thing. So, so the, you have new methods that are developed and, and they are becoming a hype, and, and then uh, if you're at the right time, it can be really built your career. That, so if you are one of the first people applying a new method, uh, whether it's uh, to photon imaging or to genetics or whatever, if you're one of the first to do that, uh, if you're a PhD student or a postdoc in one of the labs that starts with that, and the method really takes off, uh, that's probably the best place to be, uh, because that's where the, the fast uh, things go. But yeah, at some point that new method is gone, and if you're in, in the second or third wave of, of that method, then yeah, you will have to be creative uh, more than, uh, it's not just about the method anymore, but it's about um, integrating it with other methods often, and uh, coming up with new scientific questions that often becomes where you make the, the difference. So, um, yeah, so overall, I, I would say if you if, if you would want certainty of, of having a, a good start of your career, it's it's handy to be in one of those uh, labs where things start. The problem is that you don't know which methods will take off and will be successful. Some of the new methods that have started um, are, of course, the the end result of, of many years of preparation. And you don't want to be one of those people that has to do all the preparation, but then has to stop before <laughs> it's actually successful. So, so this is exactly uh, yeah, inherent to science that is unpredictable about what will take off and, and what will not. Um, so it's hard to, to say in general, okay, this is the way you should do it, because as a, as a young student, you don't have the, the oversight to see, okay, this is now going to take off, and, and that is uh, not. I don't think that's very easy advice on that. But looking back, if you would say, okay, what were the, the, the key points in, in certain fields where you really needed to be there, well, that's what you can clearly see. You need to be there exactly at the time where a method is mature enough to really take off. That's, that's the ideal point uh, to be as, as a human scientist. Uh, 
but you have many successful scientists that have not done that, eh? so it's not the, the only way, but, but that's, that's definitely something that can help. And with behavior, we haven't uh, had that people have developed new paradigms, for example, uh, but it's not that you can say, okay, there's a, a large bunch of people that have become successful by uh, finding a new behavioral paradigm. What has happened is people apply new methods to old questions uh, and, and combine them. For example, you have like uh, neuroeconomics, for example, was, uh, some time ago, uh, outfield, uh, social neuroscience at some point. And so you had methods that were developed often in, in uh, sensory neuroscience and then people said, okay, this human imaging, that's very interesting. And now they, they integrate that with questions uh, from the behavioral literature and then you get a new field. Uh, and that has also been quite uh, successful. But if we are back to your own trajectory, yeah. so you, you've done your undergraduate and graduate in Europe, and then you did your postdoc in the US uh, yes. at MIT. Yes. Mm -hmm. How, in your view, scientific ethos differs in Europe as compared to the US? Scientific? Ethos, approach ethos. to science. If, if it does. Uh, mm. Well, I is the yeah. I'm, I'm trying to find a, a general difference. So I think there's some differences we, we often focus on. Like for example, we have a few uh, top institutes in the United States where they are relatively uh, flexible in how they are organized and, and what they uh, invest in, and and they have a, like a concentration of very good uh, people that all come to the same uh, place and you have like all the people working there will still be science five years later even the young people because they all end up having their own independent positions and so on so you have a few places like that in the us and it's not so easy to find places with the same flexibility in uh, in europe uh, but those are exceptions also in the united states and so if you're in the united states you're in, in a in uh, yeah, not one of the top 50 places then then there's a lot of those benefits of those top places that you don't have and and so overall i'm not sure there's so big of a difference between the united states and europe there are local differences certain institutes that have very peculiarities to them uh, but they are not representative for the whole system in the united states so if you look at the, the whole system one big difference is that the united states is a, is a bigger market uh, while here in europe we all have to deal with differences in, in what local countries do so that there is much less exchange uh, between countries or, or different languages uh, and so on so it, it's more like a local uh, market and you see that uh, uh, here much stronger than in the us that that yeah people tend to either stay or at least come back to the same country where they came from i mean i went to us but then i came back to belgium uh, and uh, yeah People from Germany, they go to the US, uh, they might end up at different places, but, but if you look at Germany, uh, most of the people that get tenure positions in Germany are people with German roots that are actually originally German. And you have exceptions, definitely, but they are not the majority, they are even not 20%. It's, it's a small minority that, uh, in the end, uh, will be from another country. And that's typical to the European market, even though we have a European Union and we have some European grants, the, uh, a lot of the science is still embedded in, in like the local uh, habits and, and yeah, you know your own system best and, and yeah.
So that's that's typical of Europe. Um, Do you think it, in a certain sense, exacerbates the problem that you've written about about the fact that there is a leak of brains out of science because even though PhDs are handed out in great numbers, then there is a bottleneck of tenure track positions. We definitely have that uh, bottleneck, uh, and uh, so we have uh, had in, in many European countries a, a massive increase in the number of uh, PhD students, and, and the number of, of permanent positions hasn't gone up uh, to the same uh, degree. So that uh, changes uh, often people's viewpoint also on, on what a PhD means. And so, in 20-30 years ago, a PhD. Yeah, you could see, okay, could prepare you for an, uh, a career in ac academia. Now you can't be that certain of that anymore, and, and so you uh, you have to be prepared for that. Uh, and, and so it changes what a PhD means. Uh, now the reason why we have more PhDs is because there are people that believe that a PhD is important. Uh, even if you don't stay in science, uh, all those people that have been educated in science for a couple of years as a PhD, and then go outside of science, that there's a benefit to society that that happens. And, and that's the only big argument for doing it uh, like this, right? that, that there is this uh, benefit. And it's partially up to, to the scientific community to make sure that that's indeed uh, helping, mm -hmm. because otherwise there's no reason to have so many uh, PhDs. So it's, it's a bit also the scientific world that has to change the way we uh, deal with PhD students and the way they are educated to make sure that if they go out of science, it's uh, to the benefit of the PhD student to have a PhD and a benefit to society to have uh, those uh, PhDs around. Uh, and I, I think it, it, it has a benefit and if I look to the people that came from my lab and went uh, out of science, I notice that if they go to other positions, they have some, uh, some other mindset and they often say that also that that they deal with problems in a different way than their colleagues, they, they look at it more systematic, mm -hmm. they, they, they also are educated much better at the technical level, they know how to program, they know how to work with the computer, and, and so even though they might have a degree in, for example, psychology, some of the people that get a PhD uh, might have had a background in psychology, they, they are very different from other people with a master degree in psychology, and, and that's very clear when they do the the job they do. They're much more critical. Uh, one of them looks for the organization in Belgium that has to control uh, the, the way um, institutes deal with regulation uh, and, and the financial stuff and then also content related. And in her case it's the educational programs, so how much they fit with, with regulations. And, and she was hired to actually do this in a more quantitative way. And, and so she, she uh, definitely pushes that in that uh, organization, even though it can conflict with political forces that, because yeah, if you put things in numbers, you sometimes have um, unpleasant surprises from the point of view of politics. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's uh, uh, something that's not always that uh, trivial, but I think that's one of the, of the benefits you can have uh, that. But you have to avoid that. You have like a lot of people that go to a PhD that they all think I'm going to have an academic career uh, and uh, I don't like doing a PhD, I don't like doing research, but I want to have an academic career and, and I want to be a professor. That's not uh, a good thing because then you will have a lot of people disappointed. Uh, so I, I think 
you need to go inside because you you like doing it because you like uh, investing some time in a question because you like the, the whole atmosphere around it. Uh, but these days to say I want to do it because I want to become a professor is a risk. And if you want to do it, yeah, then it means a lot of hard work because there will be many people that probably have that aspiration, and <laughs> so it will uh, also mean some uh, some sacrifices, uh, probably in terms of uh, work-life balance and, and so on. So it's it's there's a lot of uh, competition around that. But the example that you've given is still fairly technical, and one of the common criticisms leveled against science PhDs is that they revel in their obscurity and they don't reach out to the public. And as I mentioned, you have opinion pieces and you are fairly outspoken not only on scientific issues but also on economic ones. And I was wondering, do you see yourself in a sense as a public intellectual and how do you see your opinion pieces affecting the public view of the problem? Well, there's a variety of, of people in academia. Um, and I'm, I'm not necessarily in favor of the idea that all academics should do this uh, to the same uh, degree. Uh, nevertheless, I think there is a, a positive association between uh, how much people look further than their own uh, research and engage in these kind of things and the uh, probability that they will stay in, in uh, science. At least in, if, if I look around me in, in, in Belgium, the well, the people that just consider a PhD as a 9-to-5 job uh, will probably not engage in these kind of things uh, and will also not be the people that stay in science. The people that stay in science are the ones that yeah, almost like identify themselves with the research and are really invested in that. And some of those people are really going for the research itself and nothing uh, uh, apart from that and, and I think that's totally fine. And others. Um, develop a broader interest as well, what does this mean in, in a larger whole and, and they are interested in how science works as an organization, they might engage in the, I don't know, I know in, in the local organization as well, being representatives of, of the PhD students, uh, building a PhD society or something like that. I mean, there are many different ways of doing that, but you notice that often people with those kind of interests are also the people that uh, progress further in, in, in science. And so for some of, of those people uh, that uh, go further in science, indeed they, they like doing this public outreach and, and uh, do that more than, than other people uh, do. And I think it's a good thing, but I don't think everybody should uh, do this. Uh, th then you have, of course, uh, some people that go very far in that. Uh, and and I, I'm somewhat ambivalent about that. Because there are sometimes people that go that far in that, that you could say, well, yeah, but what's their own uh, research? Mm -hmm. And so, so some people are, are more well known in terms of being a public intellectual than in terms of the research uh, that they do. And then you get into the strange situation that the people that you see in the media are not always the real experts. They're just the ones that are most outspoken and they uh, are good for the news media because they give the nice one-liners and, and things like that. But it's not always the, the people that are mostly expert uh, on it. And that's something I think yeah, that every academic has to decide for themselves. How much do you want to invest in this uh, public forum? Uh, and, and is that really what you want to do? Is that really what, what you're good in? Is that uh, something that benefits both you and, and, and the broader society? And I don't think this is something you can force upon academics. There's sometimes academics that say, well, everybody should do this more. And 
I agree that there should be enough uh, academics that also engage in, in public life, uh, but not everybody has to, to do that. It's something that you, you yeah, either you want to do it or, or not. Um, but I think enough people should do it that also have uh, at least one foot still in the real academic research because you often see very, very easy exaggerations, simplifications uh, in the media and, and, and people just don't uh, put enough emphasis according to my opinion in terms of how complicated science and, uh, and how complicated reality is, how often reality is grey instead of black and white and uh, I think academics have all the, the expertise on that, uh, knowing that things just don't go that fast. And I think it's good if there are academics uh, also in, in doing this kind of uh, work. But I notice in, in my own environment there are some uh, professors that that really go very far in this and, and they have like a public life and they, and they come on television a lot and I don't have an aspiration and if you want to do that there's not much science you can do beyond that so, <laughs> so it's not really what I, what I aim to do uh, it, it more happens uh, just because I have an interest sometimes and sometimes uh, tell my opinion about it it sometimes happens to me but I'm definitely not the first one that they're going to call if there's something uh, happening and they need a quick answer but it's very interesting, if, if something happens in, in media and they need an academic to speak about it, well, they, they, they would call me in the early afternoon and they would expect me two hours later to give an interview about that topic. Uh, and even if it's uh, something happening in science, because sometimes it's about more general things, mm -hmm. but even if it's something in, in, let's say, neuroscience, I haven't read the paper. And so it's not because they, there's like a, a media... Um, news uh, thing happening that I have read the paper and then uh, they expect me to give expert opinion two years, uh, two, sorry, two years would be okay, but <laughs> two hours after it uh, has appeared. Uh, so the, the way in which media works is very different from the way that we as academics think. Eh? Uh, so you can say that, well, give me a day to, um, to read this paper. No, they need the expert advice immediately. Uh, so there it's work in a very different way compared to how academia works and, and you need to find a, a good balance there as an academic, like where are you comfortable with and, and how far do you want to uh, go with that. But I think it's also good for us as academics that we realize what pressure journalists are under and how that world uh, works, because there's also a lot of frustration among academics about how the media works and we, we not always blame the right people, uh, because the journalists also just try to do their job as, as good as possible. And it's only by sometimes engaging in it, I think that we have mutual understanding. It's good to have people that are trained as academics, that become science journalists, uh, to have sufficient PhDs, PhDs in the media, I think is a very important thing. But also the other thing is true, I think it's good if academics sometimes have the experience of how this, uh, the media works, so that you, you understand each other's uh, restrictions uh, a bit better rather than blaming the other, like the ivory tower uh, stereotype of the academics and then yeah, the journalists that don't, don't care about whether what they write is true or false, but just want to have uh, enough readership. Uh, so, so I think yeah, we need more mutual understanding there. And if we go back to the more strictly academic track, so since you are a professor, you are giving several classes at the Catholic University and I, and I looked at the curricula and what jumped at me was the fact that you insist on putting the findings and facts into historic and philosophical context. 
And sometimes there is an argument that is made, especially now that there are so many new papers coming out and they are immediately accessible, that students beyond a certain stage, let's say after bachelor's, do not need any history because there is no time for it. And what they should focus on is to get up to speed with their current field. So why do you think mm -hmm. his history is important and how do you incorporate it into your own teaching? I, well, it, it totally depends from, uh, from field to field how much uh, you should mm -hmm. know the, the history. For me, it's, it's one part that uh, interests me uh, a lot. I, I also had it as a, as a student. Um, uh, take a topic like like mathematics. I'm I'm probably more interested in, in how those theories and, and those fields uh, developed than than the hardcore mathematics uh, uh, itself. So so I have this interest also in the social aspect of, of science. So for me it's it, it interesting anyway. And if you are somebody that wants to research that, then you need to know about the history. But the question is probably more about I don't know, life scientist that mm -hmm. uh, that wants to. Uh, study something with new methods, like how much do they need to know about uh, the history. Uh, probably for doing the work as a, as a PhD student at that point in time, uh, to go as fast as possible, uh, you're probably better off just jumping into it. <laughs> uh, I, I can see that point. Um, but if you, if you want to be the able to, to go further than that and, and make progress uh, in the longer term, I think you need to have a, a, a wider knowledge. Mm -hmm. uh, and you can have that knowledge by, by knowing it all yourself or at least having the right connections. But to have connections, to be able to speak with people from other fields, you need to have like a, a broader basis. And, and well, it has to be in, in your head. If you talk to somebody from another field, you can't say, well, let me first uh, Google this <laughs> and that. There needs to be a, a, a common base. And, and so I think we, we all need to have a, a basic uh, training that we share to be able to have this uh, exchange of ideas. Um, I mean, if you just consider, for example, optogenetics and, and, and the whole uh, idea about using opsins uh, to, to uh, change the activity of neurons, that's that's an interdisciplinary enterprise and it's only by um, by being aware of the potential implications of one field for another field that you can come up with something uh, like that. So if we would all be in a, a very small field, there might be a lot of things we miss. So at least some of us should have this, this broad education and you should have people going from one field to the other field. And so interdisciplinary science is a good example of that. It's not easy, it's not the fastest way to get somewhere to do interdisciplinary research, uh, but it, it definitely has its place uh, because it, it exactly allows this uh, mutual interaction and uh, fertilization that, that I think you, you, you need at least as part of the whole uh, enterprise. So. But I don't deny that uh, quick uh, specialization can also have its, its value if you want to get uh, somewhere uh, very easily. And, and to some degree, I, I really wonder how people in some fields do it. Uh, I think we are still a bit lucky that uh, for life scientists, uh, it's not that urgent. So you can still do quite interesting things and come up with very clever ideas when you're 40 years old as a life scientist. Uh, and by that time, you can accumulate a lot of uh, knowledge. But imagine that you are a mathematician and you want to uh, solve 
the difficult mathematical problems. Well, there's a lot of knowledge uh, and data in the literature that mathematicians are at their best when they are, I don't know what the exact age is, but it's like 20 years old or so. So by 20 years old, you can't know the whole history of mathematics, I, I presume. And definitely you cannot have uh, knowledge of other fields as well. So somehow, for, for being really good in those fields, the, the, the people that have the intellect and the, the capacities to do that, they should probably, as fast as possible, <laughs> specialize because uh, they, they need to, to be fully uh, uh, trained uh, in that specialization by the time that they are at, at their best and they don't have to wait until 30 years old because then the best is gone. Right? So, so uh, it's, it's interesting that for some fields you probably need that specialization faster than, than for other fields. But I think life sciences is somewhere in between. I think there it also matters to have the, the broad education and a broader oversight. That uh, is also very important. Uh, and I think in our field definitely uh, many of the, of the big uh, names uh, of, of 50, 60 uh, years old still uh, I mean, often drive the field just because they have this general overview. So I think that's still very important. And if you specialize too early as a scientist, it might give you a quick gain in the beginning, but it might turn against you at a later stage. In, in your own career, is there a skill that you wish you picked up earlier on, now looking back? Uh, probably many. <laughs> you can't be uh, fast enough with uh, picking up uh, skills. I, I think, and many people will agree on that, that uh, basic uh, programming skills you can never have. Uh, enough, huh? and and I actually I picked them up actually quite early because I already learned how to program a little bit when I was mm -hmm. twelve, uh, but I did not uh, train systematically enough in it across all the, the years, and and probably more training in that would would have been very good. This algorithmic thinking and and, and picking up several programming languages and, and so on, I think is a something that it's only helpful. And I also noticed it in my lab. Whatever the background that people have, uh, if they come, especially if they come from a field where, where programming is not so common, the ones that have this experience go much faster than the ones that don't have it. So I would, yeah, definitely uh, argue that you can only pick it up, uh, but you should pick it up as early as possible and, and keep engaging in that. And I, I think. When I was a PhD student, I was, I was fine with it, fine enough to, to do the things that I want to do, and I was uh, better than, uh, than most of the students around me, so I, I didn't have the feeling that I, I was uh, hindered by my uh, programming uh, skills, but looking back, I should probably even have engaged more in it. And if there's one thing that I would, uh, that I regret most, not having the time for now, it's actually to, to keep on doing that more now, to pick up new programming languages, I was trained at a time where it was very, very obvious that MATLAB was the one, the thing to do. But only a few years later, and the whole Python thing uh, came up, people started doing much more of their statistics in R, for example. Uh, I would love to know Python and R much better than I, I do now, because I only know the, the real basics. Uh, and I would like to know more. Uh, so, so, yeah, it's something you can't have enough of. Ever and, and yeah, it's a continuous education. I think that that would definitely be the, the one thing I would pick out of it. But yeah, there are many other things that I would like to <laughs> know more.
more than a better uh, literature overview because I, I now have the feeling that sometimes I, I lack uh, the time to, to, to really pick up uh, on, on new uh, developments in the literature if it's outside my own field and, and so on. Yeah. But I think the literature is just such a rabbit hole that it's it's forever. Everyone is behind. It's like chasing the the yes, queen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I always uh, envy people that have a very very narrow specialization uh, because then they can keep on on top of everything that is uh, happening there. Uh, but in my case, because I, I have one foot in the human literature, one foot in, in the more systems of neuroscience, uh, animal literature. It's very hard to to uh, stay on top of, of both fields, uh, so that's 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 frustrating. Yeah. But um, in your view, what is the most successful theory in neuroscience today? The most successful theory. Yes. So not method, but uh, uh, theory. theory. Yes. Uh, Well, it's, it's probably, I would probably pick out one that I'm, but it depends on whether you talk about neuroscience in general or um, subparts uh, of, of it. Uh, so, but if I would have to take in, in general, I, I have a love-hate relationship with it, but I would probably uh, take out like more like the, the Bayesian uh, framework, uh, even though I'm actually not uh, using it often in my own history, or at least the, the methods that, that uh, come from it. Uh, it has quite broad applicability and it uh, results in relatively specific predictions. Uh, and, and for that, I have quite some uh, sympathy uh, for that at the moment as a broad uh, theory. Because I think it, it, it is a, a theory. Uh, there are other things that that somewhat relate to theories that, that I might not categorize as a theory. So, so one thing that's, for example, a theory also is this whole idea of uh, predictive coding. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that's a very broad theory, and the reason why I didn't pick that one is because I think it's so broad mm -hmm. that it can explain everything post hoc. It doesn't give uh, very clear predictions in all cases, so, so that's why I'm, I'm less mm -hmm. uh, in favor of that one. And something else I didn't pick up, but I didn't do that because I'm not sure whether you would classify it as a theory, is this whole idea of uh, relating the, the actual uh, biological brains that we study to things like artificial mm -hmm. intelligence, uh, these nice uh, deep neural networks that you have around mm -hmm. uh, since a, uh, a couple of years and they show very good uh, performance. They're, they're probably better seen as another model <laughs> rather than a theory. Mm -hmm. um, but some people would disagree and would say, uh, okay, these guys have actually theoretical predictions and, and it's, it's just it's more operational maybe than, than, than a, a real theory with formulas and, and so on. But it also uh, qualifies as a theory. Uh, and, and it's probably the thing that changed, at least for me, the, the thinking and, and the more computational part of my research the most. Uh, so in terms of practical implications for me, that would be, for me be the development from a more computational, theoretical perspective that, that was the most important. But yeah, whether it's a theory, that's, uh, that's up to you. Uh, 
And to finish with the counterpoint, what is the recent piece of data that you are most excited about from your lab or from anywhere else? The recent piece of data. So what is recent? Two years, maybe? <laughs> if we take the, the science horizon. Uh, yeah, I'm going to forget something now. Uh, hmm. Uh, well, the uh, if I were thinking in uh, like recent uh, conferences and, and, and so on, but I definitely keep an. Uh, an ion is uh, everything that is related to to uh, bigger data repositories mm -hmm. uh, that that are coming into play uh, more and more, and I definitely keep an eye on them because it's uh, it's um, it might be relevant for people doing experimental uh, research. And, and one example uh, is is the for example the the Allen Institute mm -hmm. uh, that, that is, is now trying to make big data sets and also make them publicly uh, available. Mm -hmm. So there my, my uh, uh, enthusiasm and interest would be in particular in, in the size of the data sets but also the fact that they make it publicly uh, available. And I, I'm really curious to see how that is going to uh, change the way we do neuroscience in the next mm -hmm. uh, couple of, of years. Because we we are a field similar to actually, for example, uh, psychology, where, where we have a lot of, of, of theoretical, uh, sorry, experimental approaches, but also theoretical ideas uh, flying around, and often you have a mixture of bigger labs and, and smaller labs uh, doing uh, research. But even the bigger labs that have a lot of resources tend to to be relatively closed, uh, so they don't make their data available, even though there's a lot of public money used to, to get the data. Um, and and I, I'm really wondering how what's going to change if data are becoming uh, publicly available, if, if a few big players in the, in the field would really make that a habit, uh, and, and some other place to do it as well, like Genelia Farm, I mean, there's a lot of the designs of things that they make and, and so on that they try to, to really make available to people as much as possible. And I really wonder how that's going to change the, the, the field. Um, yeah, there's probably going to come a time that, that a smaller labs, it's not really going to work anymore and that we will have either the, the, the big labs that can still uh, manage to have all the different experimental methods that you need uh, around, and then apart from that, uh, some of those labs or other bigger initiatives that have yeah, bigger collaborations that then also put the data available. Uh, and so that, yeah, that is not very specific on a particular data set, but uh, for example, at Society for Nurses, they had a few posters where I had the impression that they were developing data sets that I thought were going to be useful. And uh, yeah, that, that smaller labs like mine, for example, uh, would have to see, okay, uh, to what extent do you still want to to kind of do your own thing and uh, we should be just kind of uh, go up in a, mm -hmm. in, a, in a bigger collaborative effort and you just decide, okay, that person is doing that and that person is doing that in a, in a bigger uh, effort. Um, so I really wonder how that's going to, mm -hmm. to change in the next couple of years, but yeah, in the past few years, in, in all subfields of neuroscience, you see this uh, change uh, happening. Um,
And I've always been a little bit uh, reluctant to see that as going to be the full solution because we have so many different questions and approaches and so on. So there's probably always going to be a place for people that try something new, something different, uh, uh, just on their own or in a, in a smaller group. Uh, and, and then that turns out to be successful and uh, bigger groups of people might uh, pick it up. So I think we will always have a place for that, uh, but I think it's going to shift a bit uh, by this uh, movement towards open science. And I think that's a good uh, situation, uh, but we'll see how it goes. Yes, yeah, so hopefully 100 years later it may be the next stage of maturity of neuroscience, let's hope. Yes, uh, uh, yeah, I agree. But standardization of methods is, is not easy if you have a continuous flux of, of new methods. So I, I think it's going to be a mixture always. But I think it's, it would be good if you can find a system where we, we share data more and, and uh, uh, still have a good way of uh, rewarding the people that do the effort of, of the data collection because it's a huge uh, effort. And, and so I'm, I'm also a little bit uh, wary of people that, that really go for this open science, say everybody should do open science, but that themselves don't uh, engage into the data collection. I mean, uh, it has to be a right uh, balance there. Um, yeah, it remains to be seen how that will uh, develop over the years. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. If you enjoyed this episode, Please subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcast from.